Thank you to our youth choir this morning and our guest band and to Anna and Dan for leading us in music and our instrumentalists. We continue this morning in our Luke series. We're now in Luke chapter 4, From Boulders to Bread. If you have missed any of this series, I hope that you'll go online at firstamarillo.org and you'll either watch, listen, or print off and read uh, the sermons from the Lucan series. I ran to two people yesterday that are not members of First Baptist Church who say uh, their church is a different time or they're recording and they're keeping up with the Luke series by way of television here in the Panhandle, West Texas, and other states. And we're glad for those of you who are watching by television this morning and following along with us in this journey through Luke. We'll find our culmination on resurrection on Easter Sunday. So we begin this morning in Luke chapter 4, boulders to bread. There's a young couple struggling with their finances. In effort to get a better handle on their budgeting, they agreed that whenever they were tempted to make an impulse purchase, they would say, get behind me, Satan. That every time Satan came and tempted them to, to make an impulse purchase, the husband and the wife to control the impulsive spending would say, get behind me, Satan. Well, the wife came in with a brand new dress and uh, she was anxious to show it was elegant. It was obvious that it was not in the necessary budgeted item for the household and the husband said, oh, I admit it's beautiful. She tried it on, was showing it off. And he said, I, I understand it is beautiful. It, it fits lovely. But I thought we had a deal that every time you or I were tempted to make an impulse purchase that we would say, get behind me, Satan. Did you forget about our deal and what we were supposed to say when we we're tempted to buy something for which we have no budget? She said, oh, no, 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 no. I did exactly that. I tried on the dress, and I was tempted to buy it, and I said, get behind me, Satan. Well, what happened, the husband asked. He said it looked good from back there, too. <laughs> Everything is at stake here. Will Jesus... The one whom God has sent to proclaim the good news, will he defect? Will he choose power? Will he serve Satan? He could. I want you to read it this morning like you have never read it before. This is no prescribed, prescripted chancel drama. This is a real temptation and a real man who's hungry and not anxious to die on the cross. Let us watch, transfixed, wanting to shout to Jesus, don't do it. No, no, don't do it. And yet we're silenced by the fact that we know that if we were in his place, if we were hungry, if we were facing the cross, that we would sign the deal with the devil. Pretend this morning that you've never read this story before, this story about Jesus' trial of temptation, and you've already, we've walked through the first three chapters of Luke, and you know that Jesus is the Son of God. You've been told that twice. 
You know that he was born of a virgin. We've learned that in this gospel. You also know that he was born in a barn. You also know that he, he had to use a cattle's feeding trough for his cradle. The paradox of Jesus comes forth fully in the birth story and in this story. He is both God and man. And this morning, he looks so much like man. How could Jesus fail? He is God's salvation, the beloved son who's anxious to please the father. On the other hand, how can he stand strong? He's a starving man in need of nourishment. He's a flesh and blood man trying to avoid the cross. Don't rush by the temptation drama. Do not make light of this saga of Satan's enticements. Everything is on the line here. Our Lord is being tempted to use his power for personal purposes. He's tempted to trade in God's plan of salvation that comes along the rough road of suffering, the cross, for Satan's pseudo-glory, which promises to avoid the cross. As we turn to this temptation account, sit on the edge of your seat. Ponder and pray that Jesus will make it through the horrible event unscathed. And never forget... If the Savior sins, we have no salvation. First word this morning, multiple meanings. I'm going to give you right here at the beginning, we'll look at them a little bit more in a moment, three lenses by which to read the temptation account. And they all work, and each one gives us a different angle of the truth. Three interpretive lenses. Here's the first one. Read this like Jesus is the true Israel who is faithful to the Father in the wilderness when ancient Israel was not faithful in the wilderness. So read it along those lines. This is a, a reenactment of Israel in the wilderness when that Son of God wasn't faithful, but this Son of God is faithful. Not only Israel, read it through the eyes of Adam. Jesus is the new Adam who faces the trial of the tempter like the old Adam. And yet, Jesus does it without succumbing to Satan's snare. A new Israel, a new Adam. And then the third lens is the suffering servant. That being obedient through the temptation that Jesus is like Isaiah's suffering servant who brings about redemption by silently suffering the hands of evil men. Well, look at Luke 4, 1. By the Spirit. This is outlined by the Spirit, Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, so far in this gospel, you know, from 135, he was conceived by the Spirit. In 3, 21 and 22, you know that at his baptism, the Spirit descended upon him and said, this is my beloved Son, the voice from heaven, with whom I'm, I'm pleased. And now we learn that he is, for one, full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. And 4.14, we'll know that he is anointed by the Spirit. Well, so we're not surprised 
Knowing he's conceived by the Spirit, descended by the Spirit, to learn that he is both full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Only to be empowered, 414, and anointed, 418, by the Spirit. Before Satan seeks to sidetrack our Savior, we know that he is being led to this temptation by the Spirit of God himself. So the first word is by the Spirit. The second word is by the devil. Look at 2A. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. By the devil. No doubt the the language of being led into the wilderness reminds us of God's leading ancient Israel there. Listen to Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Or Deuteronomy 8.15, God led you through great and terrible wilderness. His fiery serpents and scorpions are there. Jesus is not on some idyllic retreat. He has gone to the wilderness, the barren place inhabited waterless by snakes and scorpions. Well, look at these similarities between the Son of God, ancient Israel, and the Son of God, Jesus, in this time of temptation. First of all, both were led in the wilderness by God. We learn here in 4.1 that Jesus is led in the wilderness for temptation by God. We learn in Deuteronomy 8 that ancient Israel is led into the wilderness by God. There's another thing. The number what? 40. How long was ancient Israel wandering in the wilderness? 40 years. How long is Jesus tempted for 40 days? One years, one days. There's no way that's a coincidence. And both are referred to as the Son of God. Luke 4, 3, Luke 4, 9, Jesus is called the Son of God. Exodus 4, and 23, ancient Israel is called the Son of God. Two sons of God, both for periods of 40, led in the wilderness for a time of temptation. And then all, all telling is number four, they have the same storyline. The same storyline. For example... Israel was allowed to hunger in order to learn that, God, that man does not live by bread alone. When each time that Jesus gives a rebuttal to the devil and this temptation saga, every time the passage comes from the period of wilderness wandering for ancient Israel. The first one, Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone. That comes from ancient Israel's wilderness period. Or or, or Deuteronomy 6.13. You're to worship one and only God and no other gods. That comes from Israel's wilderness wanderings in Deuteronomy 6.13. And third time Jesus quotes scripture, Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' response to Satan's temptations come from ancient Israel's wilderness wanderings, and he applies them this time successfully when with ancient Israel it was failure when they tried. Luke identifies our tempter as the devil, diabolus, 
It's where we get the word the di- diabolic from. It's, it's a terrible thing. And our world tells us that the devil's not a real person. It's just an image or an idea. Everywhere in Scripture that Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, the evil one is presented, he is a real person with real power trying to destroy us. I think John 10, 10, I memorized that as a student when I was your age. The thief only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to bring us down. Kill, steal, and destroy. The devil is a real person. And yet, as Karl Barth has said, we are not to spend our time studying the devil. The great theologian says, ask me no question about the demons because I'm no authority We must acknowledge that they're real, but then we must run and not be preoccupied with them. Well, verses 4, 2b through 3, turning boulders to bread, turning boulders to bread. Jesus ate nothing 40 days. It reminds us of Deuteronomy 9, 9, when before Moses receives the law, he spends the time, eats no bread and drinks no water. Moses communicates with God before he fulfills God's plan. And now Jesus, 40 days, communicates with God, eats no bread, drinks no water because, well, he's on his journey to Jerusalem. The real temptation is encapsulated in the invitation to turn boulders to bread. You see, if, if Jesus goes for the temptation and turns the rocks to bread, he ceased to see the servanthood of sonship. The expectation is that the Son of God must suffer. Now you say, how could Jesus even turn boulders to bread? Let's not forget this is the one who feeds 5,000 out of a little picnic basket. He could turn the boulders to bread at his word, but he does not. He tells him, 4-4, relying upon more than bread alone. 4-4, relying upon more than bread alone. He chooses God's path even over the strongest fleshly desire for food. Michael Peel in the British Medical Journal cites documented studies of people going on a hunger strike and the The British Medical Journal, it says there have been recorded people who've made it for 28 days, 36 days, 38 days, and yes, even one who made it 40 days. The British Medical Journal, Michael Peel, without eating food. Jesus chooses to starve because he's obedient. Verses 5 through 8 are outlined this way, assessing glory, assessing glory. Look at verses 5. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, you shall worship before me, and thou shalt be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Listen to this quote from Henry Now. It's one of the most powerful quotes I've read in years. You'll have to take it home and unpack it and think about it, but you listen to these words. Maybe it's power that becomes an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It is easier to be God, Adam and Eve tried to be, 
than to love God. It is easier to control people than it is to love people. It is easier to own life than to love life. Jesus asked the disciples, do you love me? And their response is, can we sit at the right and left hand of your kingdom? Maybe we substitute power for love. Now, Luke gives us the aura of temptations a little different than Matthew. It's bread and worldly kingdoms and the temple leap, and Matthew reverses the last two. It reminds us of Moses standing at Mount Pisgah and looking out at all the promised land. Here's Jesus standing tall, looking at all the kingdoms of the earth, and Satan says, you don't have to go to the cross. There's another way. I know what the Father's saying, but I've got a better way. If you'll just bow down and worship me, you can still have it all. But you can avoid the cross. The devil's deal is nothing less than all the kingdoms of the world. Now, we've already been told by Luke in this gospel that of the, his reign there would be no end. And in Psalm 2:8, the Messiah says, Ask me, and I will surely give the Messiah the nations as his inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. The devil offers a shabby substitute for all the kingdoms and glory that Jesus will receive if he's willing to go through the crucifixion and the power of the resurrection. The response of Jesus comes in Deuteronomy 6, 13. There it is in verse 8. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Our students have been studying worship this weekend. I read their material. It was very, very good. The first rule of worship is this. You only worship God. Something else will call you to, to worship. Power will invite you to worship. Right here, Jesus is being invited to worship power. I'll give you all the kingdoms. Popularity will call you to worship. Pleasure will call you to worship. Whomever, whatever you worship will hold you accountable. And therefore, only to be held accountable by, accountable by a loving God, we must join Jesus and say, we will only worship God and God alone. What you worship tells us who you are. What you worship tells us who you are. Are you a child of God? Worship God. Are you a child of power? Worship power. If you're a child of pleasure, give your life to pleasure. If you're a child of popularity, do what everybody else expects you to do. But if you, student, are going to be a child of God, you must worship God and God alone. Did ancient Israel pass that test? No. She worshiped the golden calf. She worshiped idols. You shall Worship God and God alone. I want you to think about these words. The, the next, testing God's promises, 9 through 12. Testing God's promises, 9 through 12. Look at verse 9. 
And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the pinnacle of the temple. You know, literally that says the wing of the temple. It's, it's probably the part that looks down the south ravine. Josephus, a, a first century Jewish historian, tells us if you got out there on that wing, it was dizzying. It was so tall. He takes him to the dizzying height of the wing of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. If you're really the Messiah, throw yourself down. Just jump. And then he quotes Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As Jesus quotes scripture back to Satan, Satan says, I know some scripture too. You want to play the quote the Bible game? I'm good at that too, Jesus. Let's think about Psalm 91. You just jump and God's angels will catch you and care for you. I know what the Bible says. And yet the reality is that wasn't applied here. When Jesus really takes the leap and goes to Jerusalem, the angels do not protect him from death's fall. From the cross. In fact, here's what I want you to see God preserves through death rather than from death. That's a monumental statement right there. God preserves through death rather than from death. How did, how did God bring our salvation? Through the death of Jesus. Every time we stand at a graveside, I want to remember those words. God preserves us for eternity through death, not from death. Every time you read an obituary, you say in your mind, if it's a child of God, God preserves through death. He doesn't save us from death. It is through the death of Jesus on the cross that our sins are paid for. It is through his resurrection that we are preserved for all eternity. Well, 4.13, looking for an opportune time. When the devil had finished every temptation, he departed for an opportune time. The devil will be back. Has he ever left you alone? If he leaves you alone, you're not doing very much. He always comes back. The demons always haunt us again. Jesus becomes this new Adam who's successful through temptation. Well, how, how is he like Adam? First of all, Jesus obeys God, and yet Adam yields to the tempter. Jesus is this new Adam in Paul's thought as well. Secondly, Adam is given dominion over the world. He's to name the animals, to be the steward of creation. He's given dominion over the world like Jesus is tempted here, and yet he wants more. He wants the power to be like God. And Jesus, on the other hand, seeks no kingdom for himself. Look at number three. Adam disobeys in hopes that he will not die. On the other hand... Jesus obeys, and obeying means that he 
does die. You see the difference? Adam's kicked out of the garden. Adam loses paradise because he falls to temptation. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Adam loses paradise. Jesus finds or gains paradise. Satan is gone, but he will return in our story. He will try to maneuver once again against the Messiah. He will enter Judas Iscariot. And we will read in Luke 22, and Satan entered Judas. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them. And he was looking for an opportune time. Sound familiar? Every time I read this story, I try to pretend like I don't know the end. Jesus is really a man. He really hasn't had, I mean, if we skip one meal, we're whining. He went 40 days with no food. He's really looking at the death on a, a horrible cross. We know by his prayer in Gethsemane, he's not looking forward to that. He wants to find, he wants God to find another way. And the devil is offering him another way, and yet he is obedient. He's the new Adam, the new Israel. What about when you're tempted? Tempted by power, tempted by popularity, tempted by pleasure. Whatever you worship will make you pay. And then finally, always remember, the plan of God is to preserve through death and not from death. Death is God's enemy, but death doesn't scare God. Death is God's enemy, but death doesn't scare God. He's the one who took the dust of the earth and made humanity. He's the one on that day that will call all that are his from their grave to the glorious eternal resurrection in his kingdom. He's the one that says if you're his, you don't have to be afraid of death. For in his return, all death is gone. I know one thing, just like the tempter came to see Jesus, the tempter's going to come see you. I know if he's come before, I know he'll look for an opportune time. And I hope you too will say, get behind me, Satan. I only will worship and be obedient to the one true God. Let us pray. Oh God, we come this morning and we learn to worship God and God alone. We're thankful again for the faithful obedience of Jesus without which we'd have no Savior, no salvation. We'd still be in our sins. I know that every one of these students is at a stage of life when temptation is probably the greatest. And I pray you'll give her strength to say no. I pray you'll give him strength to say no. That I will sacrifice nothing and I'll worship and be obedient to the commandments 
of my God. In the name of Jesus we pray.